seven billion human beings on this earth. Seven billion people on this earth. And every single one of us has a choice to make. To follow Jesus Christ and his authority in our lives or to follow something else and allow that person or that thing to have authority over us. Because the truth is, we are all, every single one of us, following something. We're all living under some kind of authority. And in the end, most choose to follow something other than Jesus. That is the road that is traveled by most. It is the road, in fact, that we're expected to take. It is the path of least resistance, the one that looks to our own interests first, the one that is pleasingly popular. Or we can take the road less traveled, which is misunderstood by many. That is the difficult path because it puts others before ourselves. It is not the popular path to take, but it is the way of Christ. Jesus said it this way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. You see, it's a choice that we all have to make, and whichever road we commit to will set the course for the rest of our lives. It determines the set of directions that we follow, the authority that we submit to. If you, if you turn on a GPS in your car and you program in the address of where you're going, and if you trust that GPS, if you, if you commit uh, your journey to the set of directions that that GPS is going to spit back out at you, then you've submitted yourself to its guidance. In effect, you've actually given some measure of authority to that machine to get you where you want to go because when it says turn left here, you obey. You turn left when it tells you to. <clears throat> and when it says turn right, you turn right. Well, that's how we are with life. We are all following the guidance of someone or something. We are all getting our directions from somewhere. We've all submitted our lives to some kind of authority. We may not want to. We may try not to. We may uh, not even be willing to admit that we do. But none of that changes the fact that we do. We all live under and follow some kind of authority based on the road we've chosen to travel through life. I, <clears throat> I remember as a kid growing up, starting to figure out that depending upon what the issue or circumstance was that I was trying to resolve, there could be different people who were ultimately in authority over me for that particular area of my life. For instance, there were times when I might ask my mother, can I have some money for this particular thing that I want to do or want to buy? And she would say, I don't know, go ask your father, <laughs> right? And yet if I asked my father, would it be okay for my friend to spend the night at our house? He would say, I don't know, go ask your mother. Right? So it didn't take very long growing up to figure out who had jurisdiction over what. And once you figured that out, it really sped things up. It generally made things go smoother if you knew who to ask for guidance when making your plans or your decisions. And really, that's how our lives are all the way through. If you want a day off of work, you don't ask your mother, right? You go ask your boss. If you want to build a house, you don't get the permit from your boss, you go to the county or city government to get that permit. 
If you want to borrow your neighbor's tool, you don't get a permit from the government. You get permission from your neighbor. Hopefully the same one you're getting the tool from. <laughs> right? But different people, different entities have authority over different areas of our lives. But ultimately, all true authority, true authority, it all comes from God. Romans 13, 1, Paul says there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been, inst it have been instituted by God. But it not only comes from Him, but He intends it for our good. Paul continues in verse 4, describing that person in authority. He says, He is God's servant for your good. And I think maybe we might struggle with this a bit more in this country than in uh, some other parts of the world because Americans tend to place a very high value on individualism and independence. And so I think there's always been a bit of a romantic notion in our culture associated with sort of bucking the system and forging our own way through life, which has probably motivated a lot of people to start their own businesses and pursue their own dreams and try new things. And all of that is great, as long as we don't lose sight of the one true authority who is above all others, because we're all submitted to authority, but we are not all submitted to the same authority. Some have chosen to submit themselves and subject themselves to many other authorities. They're actually false authorities that rule over their lives. Things like pride, fear, greed, lust. There, there are many things that we can actually give authority to in our lives, things that we allow to rule over us. And those false authorities guide us down the wide path, the easy way, the way that Jesus said leads to destruction. But there's only one true and final authority. There's only one who has the final word, and that is the one who guides us down the narrow path. That's the hard way. It's the road less traveled. And it's the one that leads us to life. And in our story today, we're going to see examples of both as we continue our study through the gospel according to John, as Jesus is now in the final stages of his interrogation by the Roman governor Pilate and is crucified for choosing the road that ultimately leads to life. So let's pick up the story together where we stopped last week, right at the beginning of uh, chapter 19, and we'll begin reading with the first four verses. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So just to be clear, as Pilate is in the middle of questioning Jesus, he has him flogged, a, a crown of thorns shoved down onto his head. He has him mocked and beaten before he says to the Jews, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you might know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus finds Jesus, uh, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty, and yet he has him beaten, tortured, and publicly humiliated. Why would he do that? because he's trying to satisfy the Jewish crowds who are shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate is looking for the easy way out. 
the path of least resistance. He's, he's trying to placate, to, to appease the Jews, even though he can't find any guilt in Jesus. So he has Jesus flogged, uh, which, by the way, is not the same as the scourging recorded in both Matthew and Mark. That comes later after Jesus is sentenced to death. The, the flogging here is what the Romans would refer to as fustigatio, or in the Greek, mastagao, which was really a light form of flogging or whipping, uh, of course. It was still incredibly painful. But the scourging of Jesus recorded in Matthew and Mark was a different level of punishment altogether that came after Jesus was sentenced to death. That later scourging in the Greek is called fragalao, or would be involved uh, with a, a much heavier beating with a whip that had sharp uh, pieces of iron and sheep bone embedded in it. Okay? That type of scourging was designed to bring the condemned to near death. They would actually hit them so hard uh, that the entrails would be hanging out often. The point was so that the condemned would expire much faster on the cross once crucified. So they would beat them to near death at that point. So this, here in verse 1, this is different. Jesus is whipped first, and then they weave a crown of thorns. These thorns would grow up to 12 inches long. They weave them into a crown and shove the whole thing down onto his head and into his temples. They cover him with a purple robe, which was the color of royalty, of course, as a cruel joke. And then they beat him and mock him and parade him around before the people, while Pilate emphatically proclaims his innocence. All that Pilate wanted was to please the Jewish people without having to crucify Jesus if possible because there was still some measure of conviction in him that Jesus was in fact innocent. On top of that, Pilate's wife had some kind of dream about Jesus that had her rattled. Uh, Matthew 27, 19 says, While Pilate uh, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And so, although we don't know the specific content of the dream, it was obvious, uh, obviously enough to convince her uh, that Jesus was a righteous man and not deserving of death. And in addition to the probability, at least, that this dream was given to her by God as a sign of Jesus' innocence, the Romans believed that dreams were omens. So Pilate would have most likely taken this warning by his wife very seriously. And yet, as we discussed last week, Pilate's job at this point, his career, his position in the Roman government was at stake because of his past misdealings with the Jews. And so against his own convictions about Jesus' innocence, he has Jesus punished to please the masses, hoping to gain the approval of the public. But as we'll see, it wouldn't be enough to quell the bloodlust of the crowds shouting for Jesus' death. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 8. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowds, hoping they will be satisfied by his humiliation, but it doesn't have the intended effect as they continue to shout, crucify him. 
And so in complete frustration, even though he knows well and good that the Jews have no authority to crucify anyone, Pilate tells them to crucify Jesus themselves because he cannot find any guilt in him. He's wrought out with the Jews at this point because no matter what he tries, he cannot satisfy them short of ordering Jesus' execution. And then to add insult to injury, the Jews tell Pilate, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And in that statement, they reveal their true grievance against Jesus. Okay, back in chapter 18, we saw that the Jews' original charge against Jesus was political, that, that he was setting himself up as a king in opposition to Caesar, which was not actually the Jews' true concern. Their real objection to Jesus wasn't political at all, it was theological, but they also knew that Roman magistrates were not compelled to deal with Jewish theological complaints, and so they tried to bait Pilate into condemning Jesus on a bogus political charge. But it hasn't worked. So here in verse 7, they let the cat out of the bag. Their true grievance with Jesus is that he's claiming to be the Son of God, which sends a cold chill down the spine of Pilate because he's already announced several times that he believes Jesus is innocent. And then his wife warns him from her dream to leave Jesus be as he's a righteous man. And now the Jews explain that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, and no doubt Pilate has never interrogated anyone like Jesus before. So it's all becoming too much for Pilate now as he rushes back inside to interview Jesus one more time. Let's keep reading verses 9 through 11. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the greater sin. This question by Pilate suggests at least that he was beginning to unravel emotionally. He asked Jesus, where are you from? Pilate wants to know if Jesus is more, in fact, than just a man. And Jesus responds with the last thing on earth that Pilate wanted to hear in that moment. Silence. Jesus says nothing. And so in frustration and desperation, Pilate tries to flex his muscle. He tries to intimidate Jesus by explaining the authority that he has to either release him or crucify him. And Jesus simply explains, if you have any authority at all, it's only because it's been given to you from my Father in heaven which terrifies Pilate because from that point on, he tries everything that he can come up with to justify releasing Jesus. But all of his efforts are in vain because the Jews will not be satisfied with anything short of Jesus hanging on a cross. Let's keep reading verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. They know what buttons to push. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So the Jewish people, in what amounts to the ultimate betrayal of their God, reject the Messiah and shout out, We have no king but Caesar. And after a futile effort to please the Jews without killing Jesus, Pilate finds himself at a crossroads. On one side, there was his own conviction that Jesus was innocent. The ominous dream and subsequent warning by his wife not to harm Jesus. A righteous man. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God and his own testimony that terrifies Pilate because of the authority that it obviously carried with it. But on the other side were the crowds, the pressure of public opinion bearing down on him, and the ongoing reminder that he would be risking his future, his career, his position, everything that he'd worked for if he didn't go along with the crowd. You see, Pilate was at a crossroads. He had a decision to make. Do I take the narrow road, the hard way, the unpopular choice, the one that would mean risking everything that he'd given his life to up to that point, or do I take the wide road, the easy way, the popular choice, the one that would mean he could keep his position and status and his wealth and security, and the only thing that he would have to give up if he took the wide road would be his own convictions, that which he knew in his heart to be right. And so he sat there on the judgment seat with Jesus Christ on one side and the crowds of people on the other. He had a choice to make. Pilate chose the wide road, as so many people do. The majority of people, in fact, because the wide road is the easy way. It doesn't require us to live a life of sacrifice. It doesn't require us to live a life of fidelity to God or to others. It doesn't require us to take a stand for anything. On the wide road, you get to choose what's right for you. You get to decide how to live your life as you please. There is no code of conduct other than the one you choose for yourself. At least that's what people tell themselves. The truth is the wide road requires no courage. Although people on the wide road love to tell each other how brave they are. They defy God and his word and embrace every kind of evil imaginable and call it courageous. Now listen, that's the world being the world. So we don't hold them in contempt. We love them with mercy and grace and compassion as we tell them the truth. That although they think they're breaking new ground, they're actually just simply plodding their way down a well-worn path, following the footsteps of generations of people before them who took the easy way out. The wide road is a lie. It appears that you are your own ultimate authority in life, and that is the great deception of traveling through life on the wide road. Because whether or not we're willing to admit it, we are all living under authority. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The Greek word for serve in that verse is douleuo. It specifically refers to the work of a slave, not an employee. 
which means that each one of us is either a slave to God or a slave to what this world has to offer. And in this verse, he's specifically referring to money or worldly wealth. In the Greek, it's the word mammonos. The point is, we're all submitted to something. Something that drives us, something that leads us down the road of life. And we should ask ourselves honestly, what am I submitted to? What do I obey? My own desires, my own thirst for what this world has to offer, or do I obey God and His Word, seeking after what He has to offer? Do I chase after the promise of pleasure and comfort and security? Or do I follow hard after God, even at great risk to myself? Do I long to attain wealth for my own gain more than I look for opportunities to give it away for His sake? Do I give what is left over or do I give my first and very best? Am I more concerned with what other people think about me than I am with what God thinks about me? Do I listen to the voice of the crowd more than I listen to the voice of God? Because at first glance, it seems like a really great way to go. But the wide road is nothing more than a great deception. There's a quote by an unknown author. It says, don't think you're on the right road just because it's a well-beaten path. On the wide road, we may think we're forging our own way through life, but we're actually just following after the crowd making ourselves obedient to the one that Jesus referred to as the ruler of this world, the enemy of our souls, who's leading those on the wide road to their own destruction. Pilate chose the wide road. He had an audience with the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the king of all kings. And his own convictions told him that Jesus was innocent, that Jesus was righteous, that Jesus was worth listening to. But he allowed the shouts of the crowd to drown out the voice of the Christ. And Pilate chose the wide road. There is a better choice. Let's keep reading the last part of verse 16 through verse 22. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. You see, Pilate wanted as many people as possible to read it. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So Pilate pronounces the sentence of death over Jesus, even though he had already publicly pronounced to the Jews numerous times that he found no guilt in him. And although John doesn't describe it here as Matthew and Mark do. This is the point at which Jesus was scourged. He was beaten to near death and then made to carry the cross that he was to be crucified on outside the city to the place of a skull where he would be hung between two others who were also being crucified. And to be clear, Jesus would have been carrying the cross piece. 
the horizontal part of the cross, not the entire cross as is often depicted in movies and paintings. The Romans would plant the, vert the vertical part of the cross into the ground ahead of time and force the condemned to carry the horizontal part to the crucifixion site. So when Jesus was carrying his cross, he was carrying the section that his hands would soon be nailed to as the vertical post was already in the ground in preparation for his arrival. And then in another great act of irony, Pilate has Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, inscribed on a plaque and mounted on the cross as was customary to indicate to all those witnessing the crucifixion what crime had been committed by each person who was condemned to die. And of course, Pilate meant it as a mockery to the Jews, not realizing the profound truth, the weight that it actually represented. Let's continue. Verses 23 through 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven into a one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is stripped naked in abject humiliation, and the Roman soldiers divide up his clothes in fulfillment of the prophetic Psalm 22, which David wrote nearly a thousand years earlier. When they get to the tunic, they cast lots to see who would get it, which was not only in fulfillment of Scripture as well, but it was also an allusion to Jesus as the great high priest, as this tunic was a seamless garment. And we're told in Exodus 28, 31 and 32, that the high priests in the Old Testament wore seamless garments. And so all of this is happening in fulfillment of God's word, according to to God's plan. In fact, there are numer numerous references to different parts of Psalm 22 in John's account of the crucifixion here. And we went over this a year or two ago. I won't do it again this morning. It's incredible when you follow Psalm 22 and the crucifixion stories, both in the Synoptic Gospels and here in John, remembering that Psalm 22 was written a thousand years earlier. Okay. And so all along the way in this story, we see Jesus repeatedly making choices over and over again at the greatest peril to himself in order to follow the Father's plan. In Matthew's account of his arrest, right after Peter cuts off the servant's ear, Jesus says, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Listen, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Matthew 26, 52 through 54. In John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. 
I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. He's simply being obedient to the father under his authority. Okay, everything that Jesus was going through, he was choosing to go through. And he was doing it, of course, for us. But the point is, he was not being forced into anything. At any moment, he could call forth legions of angels to wipe all of these people off the face of the planet. But he allowed his trial and persecution and crucifixion to continue. And even at that, while hanging on a cross, dying the most horrendous kind of death, Jesus was still directing his disciples and showing his great love and concern for them as he tells John to take care of his mother, even as they are watching him gasp for his final breaths. You see, Jesus chose the narrow road. He chose the hard way, the path that meant he would lay his own life down for hours. It was the path that didn't make any sense to those around him, not even his closest disciples until later. He chose the unexpected road, the one that puts others first, the one that follows God no matter where that leads us, the one that demands everything that we have to give in order to glorify him and to point others toward him. That's the road that requires true courage, at times complete and utter humility and a commitment to live for something bigger than ourselves, something that transcends our individual lives. It's the road that comes with great cost in this life and great reward in the next. The narrow road is the one less traveled. It's the one that is sometimes offensive to the world. It's the one that people might mock you for following. At times, it can seem a very lonely road to be on. But in fact, we're not alone. We're never alone. We're never alone on the narrow road. The crowds may not be nearly as large, but we walk together on that road with each other, our brothers and sisters who are in Christ as we follow his leading under his authority down that road. The narrow road is the way of Christ and it is the only road that leads to life. And the good news is we don't have to walk that road by our own strength or by our own authority because we can't. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, go therefore, because, it's, because I have the authority to tell you, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice Jesus didn't say, all authority has been given to you. He said, all authority has been given to me. So we can walk that narrow road we can follow him and his word only because of his authority, not ours. Because of his strength, not ours. He reassures us at the end of that passage, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what still eluded the disciples as Jesus was being crucified. And this is what eluded Pilate and the crowds that Jesus, even in his crucifixion, actually had all authority and all power that all those on the wide road thought they had. 
And then in the last part of our story today, Jesus makes a profoundly telling statement, proving it, even while he's dying on a cross. Let's read verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So Jesus, right down to his last breath, is still choosing to fulfill the will of the Father, to walk the narrow road by obeying the word of God and, and by very purposefully taking great care to fulfill every prophetic word that was written about him. Verses uh, 28 and 29, again, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That is a direct reference to Psalm 69, 21, which prophetically describes that moment. Then he says something that is one of my favorite statements that he makes in all of Scripture. Three simple words. It is finished. And I love that statement by Jesus, not only because of all that we know it represents, his atoning work on the cross that saves us from death and hell, that redeems us from hopeless lives, that grafts us into his family and restores our relationships to God. Those three words represent the moment that all of creation had been groaning for since the fall of the first Adam. The moment described by Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 3 through 5 of his vision over 700 years earlier. Let's read it. Isaiah 53, 3 through 5, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Okay? Listen, the physical suffering that Jesus experienced was not why he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In Luke 22:42, That's not why he prayed that prayer. No, the cup that Jesus wanted to have taken from him was the wrath of the Father. The weight of the sin of the entire world delivered by way of the wrath of the Father, which is exactly what is waiting at the end of the wide road. But for those on the narrow road, everything that was accomplished on the cross was now complete. Our sins paid for once and for all. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're ever going to commit, paid for. Once and for all, the promise that we could never earn or achieve on our own was now provided for as Jesus uttered those three words, it is finished. We could spend 
all day just talking about everything that was accomplished on the cross for us that day. But listen, I love that statement for another reason as well. Because it proves that no matter what the world threw at Jesus, no matter the insults, the persecution, the false charges, the illegal trials, the betrayals by those closest to him, the beatings and torture and even death, no matter what the religious leaders tried to do to him, no matter what the angry crowds demanded from him, and no matter what authority that Pilate thought he held over him, not one stroke of the soldier's whip while Jesus was being beaten, not one strike of the executioner's hammer as Jesus was being nailed to the cross, not one thorn in the crown that was pressed onto his brow, None of it was allowed to happen without the absolute authority of God granting it permission to be so. Those three words prove that nothing is finished until Jesus says, it is finished. I'm telling you that no matter how you've lived your life, no matter what people have said to you, about what you can or cannot do or what you are or are not worth. No matter what this world has thrown at you or labeled you with or tried to hold you down for, nothing is finished until he says it is finished. And as long as you're breathing, he has not finished with you yet. He is not finished. Every single one of us has a choice to make. Will I take the wide road? That's the popular one. That's the easy one. That's the one the world expects you to take. Or will I choose the narrow road? That's the hard road. That's the one no one expects you to take because it will cost you everything that you have and all that you are. It is the road less traveled. But it's the only one that leads to life. Let's pray.